Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cotrera Show. It's January the 7th. We've got a very busy podcast for you today. We're going to talk about what's going on in long-term care, and it's not good. And that's why one advocate that's joining the podcast is calling on Doug Ford to finally call in the military already. Also, it's the day after the siege on the Capitol building in Washington. Ed Keenan was there. We're going to find out what it's like to be in the middle of that crowd and in the middle of the crowd as a reporter. Remember, these people aren't big on members of the media. But first, I want to just welcome to this show Thane Rosenbaum, who is a CBS News legal analyst, uh, to just get some confirmation on where we go from here. Thanks so much for joining us. I, I appreciate your time. Anytime. Good morning, Kelly. So, you know... Politics and uh, the process of the electoral process are is very different uh, between your country and ours here at home. I guess what I'm curious about most, you know, when I was watching the footage of the Capitol building under siege and hearing reports of uh, the, uh, you know, these uh, rioters on the uh, floor of the of the Senate uh, sitting in the seat that that Mike Pence was in, there was some talk of uh, the possibility that they may have grabbed some vital papers. So what was the mob trying to stop? It, it, you know, I know that this certification is largely symbolic, but are they actually counting something? No, I mean, I, I, I have I've seen reports of that. I don't think anything has been confirmed. I think it was just a disorganized riot. Um, it was clearly an attack against the state. Uh, the questions to, that I think are very important legally is, did the, did the crowd come with this intention? Were there actually organized leaders? It's clear that the president of the United States may have incited the actual moment but was this something that was pre-planned? Uh, because, Kelly, uh, let me just say, the optics of it before the storming of the Capitol is exactly what the founding fathers of the United States had imagined, that people had a First Amendment right to assemble under the First Amendment and to speak, to make their opinions known to the government and to criticize the government without any consequence. That's what the First Amendment embodies. People flew in, drove in from all parts of the country to say, we're not comfortable with this election. We're not sure. We've been told that there's been widespread fraud. No court wants to hear this. And then inside the chambers, there's a joint session of Congress. Every single legislator, both senators and congresspersons, were sitting together and they were about to have debates on one of the 50 states, Arizona. They were in the middle of that, actually. And they were considering at least two more two-hour debates. They might have had a full six hours of debate with people peacefully standing outside. And that would have been a testament to democracy. And instead, we saw, you know, a, a, a transgression, a disgrace, a desecration of democracy. Were they planning to do this? Uh, that's those are the you know those are questions of treason and sedition, and those are criminal matters that well, might be ask, pursued against some of these organizers. Okay, well, let me ask you that this, uh, and I want to get Dave. Dave, could you get ready the clip from Rudy Giuliani? So we know that Trump held a rally. Uh, yesterday and kind of whipped people up into a, a, a lather here, a frenzy saying, you know, uh, you know, go and be heard at the at the Capitol. You know, we're coming for you. There's a lot of rhetoric. Yeah. Um, but but Rudy Giuliani also spoke at the microphone. I just want to play his clip. And I, I want to actually ask you if if he could be held accountable legally for what he said. Ha have listen. Let's have trial by combat. 
I'm willing to stake, I'm willing to stake my reputation, the president is willing to stake his reputation on the fact that we're going to find criminality there. Okay, first of all, what reputation? But beyond that, that's just my opinion. Um, can he be held legally? I mean, he said combat. So, Kelly, this is radio, right? So yeah. you, you can't see my face. <laughs> uh, I'm cringing in utter embarrassment before Canadians. I am literally, my face is, is mangled. Uh, uh, there is a, there's a federal, there's a United States court case called Brandenburg versus Ohio, which says that you don't have a First Amendment right to cause imminent lawlessness, right? You can't whip up a crowd, have them go commit crimes, go home yourself, you know, open up, a, you know, a, a, get a glass of tea and sit around and say, well, I didn't, I wasn't at the rally, I went home. Uh, Brandenburg versus Ohio is very clear. You do not have a First Amendment right to speak in a way that causes imminent lawlessness. This, if they had come back two days from now, it wouldn't have been imminent. But the crowd, it was imminent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Those words were used, and they walked over to the <laughs> Capitol building, and shortly thereafter, the b- windows were being smashed. So, yes, uh, I, I'm afraid to say that um, uh, former mayor, New York City Mayor Giuliani, uh, could not invoke the First Amendment to protect that. That is unprotected under the First Amendment. You know, there, there's talk that uh, Trump spent most of the night in the White House raging about uh, the fact that uh, Biden had been certified and that he is no longer president and uh, and about everything that went down yesterday. And I know that he was not happy with Pence. Uh, because Pence, of right. course, uh, went ahead and did uh, certify that vote. Um, it, it, there is talk that he is unhinged. Just like, I mean, I would imagine Giuliani as a lawyer should know that he could be held responsible for what he said yesterday, um, you know, when it came to the what, the violence that it possibly could have incited and, and did. There's somebody that, that is dead now because of uh, what happened yesterday. I think I, I, there were... I think there was like four people that passed away, some from medical emergencies. Yeah, it's four. Yeah, it's four. but Kelly, uh, there was know, there was someone that was shot. Yeah, yeah, there was a woman who was shot. Yeah, no, it uh, it's 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 horrendous. You know, we are the world's longest serving democracy, operating democracy. Uh, the eyes of the world were watching us, uh, and as you said, you know, we have nothing other than we can express a, a, a source of incredible shame. And, and regret. This was not our finest hour. It was uh, our worst hour. Uh, is the president unhitched? Should the 25th Amendment be invoked? You know, uh, you know this, this behavior is consistent, unfortunately. So, you know, you could make the argument that this kind of, you know, very erratic, impulsive, uh, you know, undisciplined, right, all the words you can imagine for unpresidential, this, they're here in this president. And we've seen it for four years. Um, uh, so uh, as in terms of Giuliani, look, you know, the Giuliani thing is very complicated because you see 60 cases were dismissed. 60. Hmm. Think about that. 60 lawsuits. A uh, hundred judges reviewed the various things and they dismissed. Right. There are possibly legal issues that could have been given evidentiary hearings. There are some people who thought, myself included, there were some constitutional issues that the Supreme Court might have heard 
you know, that might have been present here. But there's no question that the dismissal of the 60 cases is what led to why people showed up. And I think it might be a reason. I'm not defending Giuliani, but he's the lead lawyer, right? So you can imagine from him, talk about a man who showed up to the crowd in utter abject defeat. I was the lead lawyer for 60 cases, all of which got dismissed. So you know what? Combat. (laughs) What's the next step, right? I mean, that's the only thing I think he was saying. You know, he didn't hope he didn't mean actual combat, but he was saying, well, I did everything I could do and I got to defeat it. And every turn uh, I was told that this case was baseless. Let's OK. So there is a possibility that that Trump right now that uh, there is a Democratic uh, senator uh, drawing up the articles of impeachment. How long does that take? I mean, we've got 13 days left in his presidency until Biden is uh, inaugurated. So uh, how long would that take? Is it even possible to impeach him at this point? Or is that something that, you know, they'd rather lean on the 25th Amendment if they're going to get rid of Trump early? No. See, here's the thing. You know, frankly, what people don't remember is that Donald Trump has already been impeached, right, with the Mueller investigation. Oh, we remember up here. (laughs) Right. No, I'm just saying that what I think the confusing thing, even among Americans, Kelly, Mm. Is that there's the impeachment process and there's the removal process, right? The impeachment process can be expedited, right? In theory, symbolically, he can be impeached. Um, you know, there there was even the last time that Donald Trump was impeached, it was expedited, right? That there was supposed to be a debate about whether to even issue the articles of of, uh, of impeachment. But uh, the Speaker of the House, Pelosi, said, no, no, we don't need to do that. Let's just draft the articles of impeachment, which is what you're saying is happening now, too, mm-hmm. right? Technically, there is an argument that, no, 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 first you have to debate even whether you're going to draft them. So she said, no, 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 you don't have to do that. I'm the Speaker of the House, you don't have to do it. So I, I, I would not be surprised that within two weeks, which is plenty of time, that, that the United States and, and the Congress the people of the United States and the United States Congress send a very strong message to the world that we impeach this president on account of what happened. He wasn't removed. Why? Because then you have to convene a Senate trial, which is what we tried the last time. And as right. you saw, that takes a while. So that I don't think Kelly can be done. But okay. I do think that there's plenty of time uh, to actually send a very strong message to the world and to ourselves that this is this is illegal, uh, unacceptable, unpresidential, undignified and a and a desecration of our founding documents and our founding fathers. So the 25th Amendment has actually never been invoked before. I think, you know, in order to send a strong message, uh, if they did invoke that, what would it take to remove Trump from office? Like, uh, you know, he's got 13 days left on his term. Would Pence take over as president? And would that be the shortest presidency ever? Yeah, it would be. (laughs) That's a good way of looking at it. It would be the shortest presidency ever. But he would get to say (laughs) that he's. uh, Yes, that that is the quickest. You know, here's my concern. I don't I'm you know, obviously I'm not a psychologist. Right. Uh, You know, is he being impeached because he's unhinged, you know, psychologically or is he being impeached because of his actual intentional, willful, knowing behavior? Right. To me, those are two different things. Right. And if but either way, can you have a man like that, you know, heading up the most powerful co- uh, country in the no. world? 
Right. Those are two different reasons. But the, the thing is, the, the impeachment would send a stronger message, right? Because then there's no ambiguity that it's not because he's mentally unfit, right? Mm-hmm. That we are really punishing you, right? We're not saying that you're, you know, Woodrow Wilson was incapacitated for the last year or so of his, and he was never, the 25th Amendment was not invoked, right? So you can imagine situations there were people who thought that Ronald Reagan at the end, right, was not his clarity was weak. Right. And in theory, uh, his wife could have said or, you know, the cabinet said he's really not with it. We really need to have someone, you know, as, as a head of state. Um, but again, that's just that's just embarrassing as opposed to something that is purely statement making. So, yes, the 25th Amendment is the best procedure provided that I think it sends a message it's not because of a mental defect that just happened. It's because of willful, knowing, intentional insurrection against this country. Dana, I want to thank you for your time, and uh, and we're thinking of you up here in, in Canada. You know, you are our closest neighbors, and uh, in in a lot of cases, relatives uh, of ours. And uh, and you're in our thoughts. It was just a horrible day in American history yesterday. Kelly, that was so wonderfully said. And as an American, I want to thank you for saying that. When I was there mid-afternoon to, to early evening, it's just surrounded on all sides by thousands of people, some of whom were, were smashing on the windows uh, on the Senate side of the building. And at some points, um, picking up sort of barricades and smashing them against the windows. Uh, there were pepper spray uh, or some form of tear gas being uh, periodically released. Uh, and it wasn't clear who it was coming from. There were no police in evidence. That's Edward Keenan, Toronto uh, Star's Washington Bureau Chief, and he was talking to Global News. Ed, thanks for joining the show. I think Edward is far too formal since, uh, you know, we've worked together. You've hosted this show for me in the past. And uh, I have to ask you, first of all, I understand you painted a picture for Global News, but what does it feel like? What's going on in your body physically while all of this is going down? A, a lot of different things sort of all at the same time, right? I, I mean, I've spent a lot of time at that Capitol building, and typically it's such a big, imposing structure, uh, so heavily guarded. Um, you know, you can't, you can't get up that close to it because the, the public entrance, you go through an underground tunnel. Um, and so, you know, you're just standing there and it's like this fortress of American democracy has been so easily overrun, which, which, you know, you're standing in the middle of it and you know what's going on inside and you feel uh, suddenly like, like a lot of things that seemed really stable and certain are not. Um, at the same time, and, and, and in front of me there, you know, there are people shouting down reporters, uh, not me, thankfully, but, you know, shouting at them and smashing on the windows and firing off fireworks uh, and and talking about revolution. Um, and yet then you, you walk, you know, just 200 feet away and there's like a, a food concession tent has been set up. And there are what? street performers playing show tunes and and people taking selfies with their families like it's a day at the country fair. Right. So there's this bizarre contrast of, of this sort of like the menace of a rebellion uh, combined with like a, like, like a day at the CNE or something. Like there are a lot of people out there just having a great old time. And then a so, lot of people who seem came, came to fight and they're just 
a mixed crowd together and and all taking place in a place where even in the normal times with my press credentials and and you know I have space inside there where I'm allowed to work uh even in normal times it, it feels like like a such a heavily guarded heavily policed space that suddenly has descended into chaos um it is a bizarre feeling and I, I wouldn't say I was like terrified uh, or, or even particularly scared at any point so much as I, as I was uh, kind of um, anxious in the larger sense that that it, it's an example, like a really vivid example of how quickly um, things that seem so, uh, so, so disorganized can be made uncertain and disorganized yeah. and chaotic. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about the disorganization. Do you think that had any effect on the fact that it looked like the uh, police, uh, the Capitol Hill police, were not ready at all for what went down? Do you think that it lulled them into a false sense of, oh, it's just more more Trump pageantry. It's it's more theater. This is not a real threat. When we saw it was a real threat, you know, there were um, plainclothes police inside the Senate uh, with their guns drawn. Uh, and and these some people would say at that point it's it's gone from protesters to terrorists at the door trying to get in. Yeah, and I mean, and one woman, one of the uh, apparently one of the um, insurrectionists, one of the protesters, was shot and killed. Uh, and and we don't, I don't know all of the full circumstances of that, but I mean, th- this was you know, a live confrontation, but what's become very obvious, and it wasn't necessarily obvious to me standing there in this crowded, chaotic situation, and like how exactly this came to happen. But when I look back at all the various little videos from news crews, but also people on social media of how quickly and easily uh, these these demonstrators overwhelmed the police, what's, what's obvious, and especially obvious for people like me who spent a lot of time at Black Lives Matter protests this summer, is that the the police uh, looked like they were more prepared to be like uh, mall security guard type people just keeping an eye on things and less mm-hmm. like they were uh, ready to repel an invasion. Uh, at, at you know, Black Lives Matter protests in in late May and early June, guarding Lafayette Park, which has nothing more in it than public washrooms and statues. Uh, you you would have. Uh, paramilitary forces from the D.C. police, but also the Parks Police and the, the Secret Service, um, standing three deep in riot gear, forming a human wall, uh, carrying, you know, assault rifles or, or semi-automatic rifles, like with them right there, uh, with, you know, mepers macing the crowd periodically just to keep them a foot back. And what you saw at the Capitol yesterday is uh, a fence barricade, you know, waist high like you'd see at a rock concert, um, you know, guarded by by apparently unarmed police standing, you know, one every 10 feet or something. Right. And so when these crowds came up and just pushed over the barricades and started uh, engaging, pushing and fighting with the police officers, they're overwhelmed. Uh, and, and many in this crowd may have been armed. I know some were arrested on weapons charges and whatnot. But, the, but those police don't know at that point. These people haven't been through metal detectors or anything like that. And so, and so you know, I, I think in the moment, those individual police officers, most of them 
you, you know, don't have a choice. But that's because at some point the Capitol Police made a choice uh, or the, the authorities directing this whole thing made a choice that they didn't um, they didn't expect that this crowd was going to try and do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, or it certainly looks like that. They didn't prepare to defend the Capitol. They prepared to sort of observe uh, a, a friendly crowd who, when they arrived, were not friendly at all. This might sound uh, weird that I would bring this up, but I, I was reading that metal musicians were reacting to the Trump uh, mob storming the Capitol. <laughs> and a guy from Fear Factory said, I do not encourage any violence or riots, but because these people are not black, Hispanic, BL, uh, Black Lives Matter or Antifa, they are allowed to destroy the Capitol without any pushback from law enforcement. If you don't see the racism, then you are complacent. Yeah, and I mean, that, that's been brought up by a lot of people. And, and I think, um, you know, there, there, it does seem to me like there's something in it. Um, and, and whether it's conscious racism or whether it's just the way different groups of people are viewed, uh, we saw yesterday that a predominantly white crowd, uh, a predominantly cr- a crowd waving sort of Blue Lives Matter flags and uh, support the police flags, was was greeted and then allowed to sort of overwhelm the police and, and occupy the Capitol and disrupt the business of government. Uh, whereas whereas what we've seen is is that when predominantly black crowds march around and protest and try to occupy a park, Mm-hmm. Uh, they're kettled and maced and and sometimes beaten and arrested. I mean, well, it, it shows that the establishment knows that they actually, you know, might have uh, something to be upset about. You yeah, know, these and, people I mean, have been kept down for you know years and years and years and treated like they're not equal citizens of the states. So I guess there's where they they uh, they know that there's actually some legitimacy behind. Uh, you know, how people can feel like they have been wronged for, for years. Yeah, I, I mean, and you see the same thing, like, when when anti-COVID uh, lockdown protesters who were armed with, with uh, semi-automatic rifles took over the Michigan legislature earlier this year and were basically just allowed to stroll in and, and take over the legislature and, again, met very little resistance from authorities there, Again, you, you know, you have people asking, like, what, what the hell? Like, why, why, are, why is this crowd of protesters uh, allowed to, to take over entire public buildings? And that's considered, you know, just a, a protest that you stand back from. Uh, while other protesters who, who block traffic are sort of beaten and arrested. Um, and... You know, I don't blame people who who say, you know, race is the really noticeable factor here. Um, and then there's also, you know, the political allegiances uh, are, are maybe another noticeable factor. So you're in D.C. You were there last night. Um, when did things start to calm down? When did you realize, OK, the, the police uh, and and other law enforcement agencies have this under control now? I can kind of call it a night. Um, you, you know what? It was it was relatively early by the standards of these things, and, and given given everything that we've said, I, I mean, I, I feel like it's worth noting that like these people uh, got into the Capitol building, took it over, rampaged around, and, and did some violence. Uh, were sort of menacing people, but but 
they didn't um, like violently physically attack anyone in there. They didn't burn the place to the ground or anything like that. And by all accounts, when the police said they would let them out without arresting them at, at some point around four o'clock, I believe four thirty p.m. Uh, or maybe it was a little bit later than that. Sorry, the timeline's a little scattered in my head. But we started seeing them come out of the building, you know, shortly before five o'clock, I think. And at that point, too, uh, that is an hour, an hour, hour and a half before curfew, um, the National Guard started arriving and uh, and and the, these riot clad police really started to uh, systematically clear the crowds from from surrounding the Capitol building. And I, I was standing there while they were coming around. Uh, shooting off flash flying grenades and and you know sort of spraying pepper spray mm-hmm. and announcing move on, but when they did that, the crowds did basically just move on. Uh, there was very little. Uh, well, you got to get your home, your kids home to bed. In clashes, yeah, and and there was a 6 p.m. curfew coming yeah. in, in D.C., which again seems like the kind of thing when you, when you're staging a revolution and the mayor announces a curfew, it doesn't seem like that would be determinative, but. I think the, the prospect that people were going to be arrested. I mean, and, and some of the people did say when they were when they were getting ready to leave, and it, this is we're saying now about five o'clock is dusk. It started. It's just get dark, starting to get dark, more darker. Um, you know, you know, people are saying, "Hey, let's go get some dinner back at the hotel, and maybe we'll go out later tonight, or maybe we'll." You did know, you get the feeling that this was a lot of people went to be part of history, even if it was oh, yeah, dark absolutely. history? Absolutely. I think a lot of people from across the country. Now, I had been in Georgia and I flew back in on uh, Tuesday and Reagan National Airport uh, in D.C. here or just in Arlington across the river um, was was just full of people who Trump supporters who'd flown in from all around the country. And they were greeting each other like uh, people at a convention. And I overheard a conversation at the taxi stand between two women, one from Detroit and one from Dallas. And they were sort of comparing notes about which Trump uh, rallies and protests uh, uh, they had attended in different parts of the country and whatnot. But but both of them, you, you know, they had the sense uh, that they had that they're flown in because they want to be part of this historic moment. Right now, wow. they believe they're on the right side of history. But those particular people I was talking to, these are Trump diehards who kind of follow them around as if it's like the Grateful Dead fans you know following the band on tour hey, let's um, not bring the grateful dead down <laughs> but they're not um like i didn't get the sense that they had come to to wreak havoc to cause havoc yeah yeah wreak havoc they more wanted to be eyewitnesses to history and and sort of participants in some capacity in that history um very quickly the feeling in dc today because you're still there are you out in the streets or are you what are you uh, what are you feeling I, w- I was out uh, briefly earlier today, and I'm going to go back out a little bit later. But it, it seems uh, much calmer today. Uh, there isn't, a, at least wasn't, uh, as of about an hour ago, a big protest presence or anything out there on the street. There is a much uh, higher, you know, uh, police presence around the Capitol building, um, uh, National Guard presence around the Capitol bu- building uh, right now. Um, I understand there I, will I be till the twentieth. People are on. Yeah, yeah, it will will be until the inauguration. And I mean, yeah. I think more of the people I've just been briefly talking about is that because Congress finished certifying Biden's victory last night, 
there, there's a sense that like the air might be out of this thing for a bit, but there's a lot of apprehension still about what might happen between now and the inauguration and maybe what might happen during the inauguration if there's going to be a further attempt to sort of disrupt this thing. And thanks so much for joining us, and I'm happy you're safe. Kelly, I, I, well, I'm happy I'm safe too, but I'm, I'm actually, it, it's for everything. I mean, this is what we sign up for, right? It's like uh, you really get a sense here of being an eyewitness to history. And so I, I'm grateful to be able to observe it um, and, and grateful to be able to talk to you about it. Even if it was a, an ugly moment in American history, uh, democracy exactly. at stake. From your well, board, what are you doing? Send out the call. These homes need all boots on the floor. They need all hands on deck. Yesterday, Dr. Stamatopoulos tweeted out last night the second hashtag tender care long-term care town hall. I learned that the death toll is now 71. This marks the highest in caps of any Ontarian long-term care home during the pandemic. And please cover this and the lack of proper response by the government to the ongoing crisis was what she said. So we are pleased to cover this and have her invited onto the show. Welcome to the program. So give us an idea. I mean, you know, just how dire the situation is at, you know, 72 people passing away at Tender Care Long a Living Center in Scarborough is is just a, a, a tragedy. You know, it's hard to put into words, but um, tell us why you think it's time for the military to come in and, and take care of things. Well, I think the data is pretty clear on this. We have more homes in outbreak now than at any point during the pandemic. And um, that's just going to keep growing. We've had rates of community transmission that are not slowing and that is fueling this uh, wildfire, which has been raging for at least a couple months now. And we have been warning this government to really enact more stringent um, safeguards for these residents, but we haven't seen any proper action to that goal. And, and I think that's why we're in the mess we're in right now. Uh, we're, we're sitting in a situation where there's 71 people that have died in this uh, long-term care center. Uh, you were, you know, railing against this last week. We heard that Doug Ford had said earlier in the first wave of the pandemic, we're going to put an iron ring around long-term care. In your opinion, what exactly went wrong with that ring? It was never there. All that ring, quote unquote, did was to provide a ring of secrecy in which these homes could act effectively and, and hid the level of neglect that was ongoing until we had the military really go in and expose the conditions. And, and I wonder, and you have to wonder if that's why our premier doesn't want to call on the military again, when it's so clearly, um, it's so clear that we need to get them back in right now. There's just not enough staff available to fill these crucial uh, staffing shortages because every time these homes enter these exploding outbreaks, I mean, we have cases where upwards of 60, uh, 70 staff are off sick isolating and who's available to step in and, and fill in for these staff. We don't have enough people and we're at, we're at a crisis point. Mm -hmm. at, at this point, there is nowhere left to turn than the federal reserves. We need the military and we need the Red Cross. Are you, what are you hearing from the military? Are they ready to go? Are they willing to step in? Yep. Of course they are. Uh, Trudeau, uh, our prime minister, said um, as early as I believe Christmas Eve that he is ready, or a few days before Christmas, that he was ready to send in help. He just needed Premier Ford to ask. That's it. When the Why military... hasn't the Premier put the call out? <laughs> it's it's mind-boggling, really. When the military was originally called in, do you think we were given a, a false sense of security when they packed up and left that there's nothing more to see here? 
I know we were because even at the military exit report, which I read and I requested, uh, there were still ongoing issues that the military clearly laid out. But unfortunately, that report was released on a late Friday night and most press didn't cover it. But I was trying to, you know, raise those um, those alarm flags at that point that um, there are still issues ongoing and those issues were not properly addressed by our Minister of Long-Term Care. How frightened are staff to go into that facility? Well, think about it. I mean, you know, you're going to put out a call in the middle of a massive outbreak for staff to go in, some of them earning not much above minimum wage, to go into outbreak-ridden homes and to risk their lives. I mean, then you wonder why we're in a situation where we have a crucial uh, staffing shortage in this sector because our government failed to do what, say, Quebec did back in the spring, which is, you know, enforce a targeted sector-wide hiring blitz where they paid a decent living wage, so a starting salary of $50,000 with paid training. And that's how they were able to get 10,000 workers ahead of the second wave. We were telling our government we needed to replicate a similar model, and they just didn't. We keep hearing that the government has money to do this, and they haven't moved on it. Um, You know, Dr. Samir Sinha's just, I think, at his wit's end. I'm sure you're familiar with him. Uh, you know, he's been trying to yep. advise the government on, on what to do here. This facility is the worst case we have right now, but it could be a sign of things to come, I'm guessing, for the rest of our long-term care homes. Yep. Is that how we should be looking at it? There's no question about it. This is a tipping point. We are at the crisis point, and it doesn't help that we have a minister of long-term care who does press appearances and, and, and tries to put out this false image that everything is stable and everything is okay when everybody on the ground floor, all the experts, all the advocates, the families are screaming that everything is not okay. And and we're just, we have a completely oblivious government that is just refusing to take more stringent action. And that's absolutely what is needed. We're all at our wit's end. I'm exhausted. I've been screaming for 10 months now. I'm tired. I would love if they just listened so I didn't have to talk anymore. Have you been into this particular uh, living center tender care? No, but I've, I was I helped lead the protest uh, last week and I held the town hall with uh, tender care families and I've been in communication with families and um, it's not a good picture that they're painting. And I mean, these issues existed well before the pandemic. When you look at the inspection record for this home, there's clear indications and a history of non-compliances. I mean, we had an inspector in that home on December 17th and outlined very clearly a series of preventable mistakes, which if not, you know, certainly aggravated, if not overtly led to this mass casualty event we now have on our hands. Give us an, ex- uh, an, an idea through the eyes of the family members that you're talking to, what exactly is happening at Tender Care that makes it one of the uh, just the, the worst uh, care homes right now to have a family member in, especially during a pandemic? Well, you hear consistent understaffing, right? That has been something we've the families have said is been in existence for years now. Um, there's a revolving door of workers that we hear. There's always new staff because, you know, if you don't treat your workers well and you don't pay them well and you don't give them proper, you know, full-time permanent work, you're going to have a revolving door of workers. And that's exactly what we have in this sector, particularly in the for-profit sector, which has been shown to exercise those uh, staffing practices more frequently than the nonprofit and municipal homes. Um, and just not enough proper care provided to uh, family members. And, and even in and the, what does know, that look like? Month- I mean, because I think people hear numbers and they, they just can't really relate. But uh, what what does yeah. uh, improper care look like? 
not being fed properly, not being hydrated properly. You know, we had accounts of family members calling 911 from within the residence just to be fed. Um, I've heard oh. constant replies of, the, uh, you know, these these um, often Chinese residents who, who just wanted hot water, hot liquids, tea, and there weren't enough staff to actually just boil the water and give them tea. And this is a very cultural, ethnically appropriate care practice that wasn't being fulfilled. And, and these you know, these residents were going without and they were just desperate for just hydration, just to be given hot water, tea, just to be fed. I mean, this stuff shouldn't be happening. And mm-hmm. the fact that we're hearing about it still, it's just, it's heartbreaking and it's really, really preventable. I mean, we shouldn't be at this point. Early on in the pandemic, I remember, uh, I, I'm not sure exactly uh, who it was, but someone who is a, a special a specialist uh, in in geriatrics was saying, you know, if his mother was in a long term care home, he'd try and get her out as soon as possible. That was Samir. That was Samir Sinha. <laughs> I Dr. thought Sinha. it was, but I <laughs> but I, I didn't want to kind of put it on him just in case. But is there is there any way to get loved ones out of a place like this during Listen, a pandemic? And I- um, I know that Dr. Sinha got a lot of flack for that. I understand where he came from but by saying it, but at the same time, um, he did get a lot of uh, criticism because it's not easy for people to just check out a resident. People sometimes forget how high um, needs and how medically complex this population is, and quite often it's the last resort. There's a reason why you have to live in long-term care because there's just not enough supports in the community, and home care is just an underfunded, abysmal mess, frankly. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, as, as much as people want to keep their loved ones at home, it gets to a point with a small proportion of our population, our elder population, that just there isn't enough support to keep them at home. People are paying and for these services. No yeah. And people oh, are paying for these services, support. right? Like, how can these companies justify treating their patients and clients in a way where they are not even being appropriately hydrated? It's It's really mind boggling. And I think what is most upsetting is that, you know, instead of holding these homes accountable, which, you know, I remember after the military report was leaked, the first one, um, Premier Ford had, you know, floated the idea of criminal charges. We're going to hold these guys accountable. You know, we're going to go after them, throw the book at them if need be. And then not only did nothing happen to throw the book at them, but then Bill 218 was pushed through in lightning speed to protect bad actors from negligence. It, it effectively legislated negligence. So now negligence, okay. So you made some IPAC mistakes and people died. Okay, now you have to prove gross negligence. I mean, it's mind-boggling. It has infuriated families and advocates and experts, and it's just the most morally debasing framework policy I've ever seen in my life. We're at 71 people that have passed away at Tender Care Living Center in Scarborough. This is the uh, most at one facility, long-term care facility, uh, since this pandemic started. Uh, how many people are going to have to pass, in your opinion, before Doug Ford calls in the military? <laughs> I, I really don't know, because the feature of wave two has been these exploding outbreaks. And we did not see this in the first wave. So arguably, we are in a worse position right now than we were in the first wave. Uh, and, and, and nothing. I mean, we have at least a dozen homes with 100 plus cases. And there's no targeted crisis response for how to help these homes. It's just astounding to me that we are not, I, I would, I'm going to put all my money on this and you can quote me on this now that we will surpass our death toll of the first wave. We will. We, there was 1,800, just over 1,800 deaths of the first wave. And right now we're at about 1,100. And we're going to get there because of inaction, frankly. 
Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate you. Uh, I know you made the call. Uh, you put the call out on Twitter and we answered that, but uh, giving giving us uh, a very... Uh, just a, a very honest look at what's happening in long-term care. And uh, hopefully, I know that Doug Ford does listen to the show. He's called it several times. Uh, hopefully, he's listening and he's about to do something. Well, we can only hope. We're praying. We're praying. Thanks so much for tuning into the program. Always a pleasure to have you with us. If you get a chance, we broadcast live three hours daily on Global News Radio 640 Toronto between 9 and noon. Hopefully, you'll spare some time for us. Have a great day.